Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Andrew Whitehead to talk with him about his brand new book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Now, here in the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have uh, difficult conversations, but really any type of conversation, that we want this to be a place where you can learn and grow and just engage your curiosity and everything, no matter the subject. And so today we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism and uh, and just how that plays out, which is really something that has become a lot more prominent over the last several years in engaging in that. And so there's a, a few other episodes I think that we've done with it, and so I'll link to those in the show notes as well. But as I mentioned today, we're talking with Andrew and very much looking forward to that conversation. Now, if you find yourself on the journey of lifelong learning, I would just recommend that you go ahead and subscribe to my Substack because each week I'm giving you three things that I'm enjoying that are engaging my curiosity or um, it's either engaging my curiosity or it's just really, I'm really enjoying it right now. And again, that could be things from uh, quotes that I'm just seeing to movies and music and uh, maybe, maybe a video game from time to time or podcasts, literally the gamut is just very, very vast. And it's meant to be that way because it's the things that are engaging my curiosity, the things that I'm enjoying and some of the things that are just making me think. So again, you could just go ahead and go to the show notes and just subscribe to my Substack right there. Now I mentioned I'm talking with Andrew Whitehead. So let me tell you a little bit about him and then we could jump into the conversation. So Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University and uh, Purdue, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where he co-directs the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. He is the co-author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, which won the 2021 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. And he has also written for the Washington Post, NBC News, Time, and Religion News Service, and speaks frequently about Christian nationalism. And he has also authored this book, which we're going to talk about, American Idolatry, How, the Christ How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Andrew, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and you know, one of one of the places that I love to begin a lot of conversations with anybody who has written a book or done a work of art, and, and I very much do believe that every book is a work of art, and I love hearing mm. I love hearing the origin story of it, and so mm. I would love to hear kind of, and I know that we're going to talk a lot about you know Christian nationalism. Too. So maybe maybe your your origin story with Christian nationalism and then what led you to write uh, your book American Idolatry. Yeah, no, it's a it's a wonderful question. I think you know in many ways uh, this uh, newest book, um, yeah, American Idolatry, it really is the kind of culmination of two strands of my journey. So the the first strand is kind of my personal faith journey. So growing up. In northern Indiana, a real religious area, um, small community where kind of everybody goes to church. Everybody's very similar, you know, in religious beliefs and view how they view the world. Um, and that's where, you know, I was really raised in the faith, fell in love with um, the Bible and the message of Jesus and was taught, you know, all those values and beliefs, um, you know, like loving your neighbor and helping those in need, all of those things. Um but then as I, you know, got older and then started to, you know, move outside that community, um, you know, really starting to wrestle with how closely intertwined uh, this idea of, of what it means to be a good American, you know, it kind of means you have to be Christian and then to be a good Christian kind of means you're American and, you know, how those things intertwine. And so starting to question that and, and to see those 
you know, kind of points where, you know, to be a good Christian, you know, I started to see, well, that might mean I have to be, you know, maybe not uh, the best American and, you know, how those things interact. Mm-hmm. So starting to wrestle with that in my personal faith journey and then professionally as a, as a social, a sociologist, a social scientist, trying to understand how Americans see their social worlds, um, explain their thoughts and beliefs and behaviors, you know, begin to analyze data and found that, you know, knowing how strongly somebody embraced this idea of the U.S. is a Christian nation, it really explained a lot above and beyond their political party or ideology or even their personal religiosity. And so then I started to explore. And the more I explored it, the more I saw how, you know, strongly embracing this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation really led to these outcomes that I thought um, were contradictory to being a faithful Christian. Um and, and that was kind of a personal belief, you know, and so in this book, it's it's me making kind of this claim that, you know, this is this pushes us away from the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where these two journeys intersected. And then this book is kind of the culmination of that, where I share that personal journey and then try to show or, you know, show how um, Christian nationalism, you know, really does push us away from living out. Um, the call of of Jesus on our lives of loving God and loving our neighbor. Mm-hmm. You know, w- one of the the statement, one of the quotes that I want to read, which I think will help set us up mm. for the conversation, is you say the first step in confronting Christian nationalism is simply knowing what it is. And so mm. I know that you've teased it out a little bit. Mm. Would you mind just elaborating in a little bit of what Christian nationalism looks like and what it is? Yeah, definitely. So you know, through our you know, I work with Sam Perry and others over the last almost decade now, I guess it has been a decade, um, really trying to empirically demonstrate what Christian nationalism is through our surveys. And so we're able to come to a, a definition that really is built on all those survey findings. So we define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework and cultural frameworks are, you could think of those as um, you know, all the narratives and myths and symbols and values that a society or a people hold um, that helps them make sense of their social worlds. And we have many of them. So Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism is one of those, but it's this desire to see civic life in the United States um, organized according to a very particular expression of Christianity. Um, and beyond like standard religious or theological beliefs associated with Christianity, this particular expression of Christianity brings with it all these other cultural assumptions. Really, I think of it as cultural baggage that just gets added on where to be a good Christian or to be a good citizen, right? There's this idea where we have to have strict hierarchies in our society of certain people at the top. Um, you know, we have a, there's a comfort with authoritarianism and authoritarian social control that we need a strong ruler or rules to enact that order. Um, another part of the baggage is really strict ethno-racial boundaries around who's a, who's a true American. And it really does mean you need to be white, natural born citizen, um, to be, you know, the truest manifestation of, of an American citizen. And so, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it really is a desire to see this brand of conservative, political, religious Christianity um, at the top, at the expense of every other, you know, religious tradition or you know, secular Americans. All of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, you you briefly touched on some of the sociological factors, and and especially with your background, I I would love to hear. Um, because at least for me, I think in the in the last couple of years, I've become a little bit more familiar with uh, Christian mm. nationalism and just paying more attention to it. Yeah, I'd love to hear what are some of the the sociological factors that either just aren't aren't being a part of the discussion right now, but mm. are pretty pretty important for us to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. So when we're thinking about Christian nationalism, there's a number of you know interesting kind of um, relationships it has with different socio demographic groups, right? Um, so when we're looking at, um, religiosity, um, one thing we find is that when we ask Americans what, you know, religious tradition they're in or where they attend church, we can kind of sort Americans into these different religious traditions. And so one interesting finding is that Christian nationalism, um, really is kind of 
has a has a stronghold within white Christianity. So if we're talking about white evangelicals or white mainline Protestants or white Catholics, um, there's more folks in those religious traditions that embrace Christian nationalism to one form or another than in other religious groups. Um, and that makes sense because that's where this narrative was kind of created and perpetuated mm-hmm. and organizationally kind of bound. But what we also find is that this cultural framework has diffused across the population. And so it isn't just within white Christianity, but we see it even outside that religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Americans who are unaffiliated that that can also you know, sympathize with or embrace Christian nationalism. Um, and so when we look at it like that, um, what what that means is that this cultural framework is really powerful within American civic discourse, right? It isn't just found within our churches, although it is, um, it is outside it as well. And so when we think about it um, and talk about it, I think, you know, it is incumbent on you know, for me as a Christian to to think through what this means and to, I think for me, you know, confront it and try to learn more about it. Um, so it has to happen with with Christians, but then to understanding that it's it's even outside of it. Um, and so that is one kind of interesting um, way that that Christian nationalism works. Um, and then the other, when we're looking at, let's say, age or education. Um, again, Christian nationalism is spread across different age groups or folks with more or less education. Um, but folks with higher levels of education, we find tend to embrace it, you know, less readily. Um, and younger folks don't embrace it as much as older folks. Um, and so there's some interesting demographic differences as well, but whether we're talking about in religion or across Mm -hmm. different social groups, we see Christian nationalism showing up, um, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Does it pres- does it present itself any differently, like in the church versus mm-hmm. outside the church, or is it is it does it pretty much look the same? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. You know, there there are going to be like um, maybe different flavors, you know, in one sense. But when we look at the survey data, um, one thing we find over and over and over is that um, Christian nationalism, if you're an evangelical Protestant or a mainline Protestant or unaffiliated, if you strongly embrace it, it's going to have the exact same effect on predicting your attitudes towards, let's say, race or um, gender issues or immigration. Um, You're going to look just like those other folks who aren't even in your same religious tradition. um, And you're going to look more similar to them and your attitudes than you are to somebody in your religious tradition that rejects Christian nationalism. And so what this cultural framework does is it really brings together groups across religious traditions or different socio-demographic groups um, and has a very similar effect in how they see their social world. So um, in that sense, you know, it really does operate similarly across these different demographic or religious or political groups. Mm-hmm. You know, do you remember the first time that you encountered Christian nationalism? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in some sense, I think the answer is no, because where I grew up, it was just kind of the way the world was, right? It's like the air you breathe, you know, it's like a fish trying to explain water. Like it just is around. Um, and this is the way the world works. And so, um, yeah, I think in that sense, it wasn't anything that was explicitly taught. Right. But Mm -hmm. when I went to church, there were the American flag and the Christian flag at the front. And, you know, when we just thought about America, you know, going to war, being active in other countries, we were, God was on our side. Like it was just kind of what was the way the world was. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, in the book or even, you know, and when I talk about the book, um, just highlighting how when everyone around you sees the world in the same way as you, um, sociologists, you know, would call that a a strong plausibility structure, right? Mm -hmm. So these social arrangements that provide support for how we see the world and what we believe and value when everybody's the same, you have no real reason to question those deeply held beliefs. They're just taken for granted. They're really unseen. They just exist. Mm -hmm. And then that's when they're really powerful. And so I think my experience and other Christians that I talk to, um, that, that, that's the way that way it was. And it wasn't until we started moving outside that then, then we started to see, Oh, there, this was a thing or this might be problematic, that type of stuff. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd love to have you touch on like the subtleness of mm. Christian nationalism, because whether it be Christian nationalism or even just like a lot of big things that we would just say, hey, you know what? I am concerned about this. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to see. It's very easy. To, I'll just say this. For me, <laughs> it's easy to see whenever it's like, oh, yeah, the, the Christian flag and the American flag that. But it, it never starts out that way. It always right. starts out a lot subtler than that. Mm-hmm. And so I would just be curious to hear, like, what are some of the subtle things that we need to be paying attention to that could become like far, far bigger? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. I think, you know, you know, I think I have to just kind of go back to what I wrote about in the book, the three idols of Christian nationalism. So this idea of power, fear, and violence and how those are intertwined um, with Christian nationalism deeply. And I think that's where, so yeah, in the book to providing a field guide, I think that's where it can be really subtle. So mm-hmm. when we're kind of being told, hey, things around us are changing um, and you're kind of hearing these messages, whether it's from the pulpit or media or whatever, that we need to kind of be afraid, right? We need to fear that we're going to no longer be at the center of culture or some of our power and privilege is going to be taken away. When those messages start to come, I think those are really subtle because we have to check in with ourselves and be like, well, why am I being told to be afraid or am I feeling afraid or angry, right? You need to be angry about this. This is happening around us. I think those are really subtle and it draws us in. Um, And then all of a sudden we are, yeah, really fearful of of them, quote unquote, taking something from us or we're going to no longer be able to pray or read our Bibles or whatever else. Um, And then when that happens and we start to believe that, it's really easy to then turn toward whether it's the threat of violence or somebody who we believe will will save the day, will come and make sure that we still are able to do what we want to do, be who we want to be no matter what. And I think that's when we start to set aside some of our deeply held beliefs and values just to maintain access to self-interested power um, or to assuage the fear, anger that we feel. So I think that's where it can be subtle um, is when we hear messages, whether it's again from the pulpit or elsewhere, um, where it's trying to turn us against some other group or use some other group to to get us motivated to do something. I think then we have to check in with um, ourselves and, and too with the, the claims that Christ makes on Christians of um, you are you are called to not to be served but to serve, you know, and mm-hmm. and to do those types of things. Um, so I think that's where we can see the subtleness kick in. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit more about power? Because out mm-hmm. out of the three, to me, power is the one to where it's like, okay, I I can see there power is a necessary power in every circumstance is not always bad. Sometimes it's good to yeah. have power and to be mm-hmm. to be able to affect change for the positive for it fear yes. and violence it's a lot easier to go like yeah those, <laughs> those aren't those aren't good things and yeah. so talk to me about like the subtleness of power of like what you're mm. looking for of like okay you know what i i think i like especially in terms of like voting i think yeah. of yeah um there, there's what are you looking for in terms of like hey you know what i think this person might actually do well with a little bit of power, giving some influence to this person versus the, I don't want to give any more power to this person. Yeah, no, that is a really good question. And you're right on, like you're thinking about it um, perfectly, I think. So when we're talking about power, um, you're right, where living in a pluralistic democratic society, there is power and to to be involved is to have a say in how power gets distributed um, to different groups and who gets to have a say. And so this isn't a call that you know Christians should just completely try to disengage, right? And mm-hmm. no power. I think that actually is a position of of privilege because folks that are um, struggling or are being crushed, right? They have no choice but to take political action to try and argue for their humanity or to care for them. So I think um, we have to be engaged. I think really where the difference is, as you point out, is, is it power geared towards self-interested ends? Is it power just to benefit us, quote unquote, the in-group? Um, and I think that is where Christian nationalism is obsessed with that type of power, that we need to have privileged access to power to make the world how we want it to be. 
and it will benefit just us, our in-group. Um, anybody that's trying to um, maybe uh, give equal access to power, um, generally those people, you know, we fight against because again, we want privileged access. So one perfect example um, is the civil rights movement, right? So one of the outcomes of that movement with the the um, Civil Rights Voting Act, that is coercive power, right? That is legislation that demanded that all Americans, regardless of skin color, should have access to the democratic process. There were people that did not want to give black Americans access, but this law demanded that that happen. So that is coercive power. However, that's power applied, I think, rightly, where it is to the benefit of all. Right? It wasn't as though this Civil Rights Act said, okay, now white Americans, you don't get to vote, and now only black Americans vote. No, they were fighting for the right of all people to vote. White Americans could still vote. They still have a say. Even those that disagreed with <laughs> equality for black Americans, they still had access. They just didn't have privileged access. And I think that's where um, that self-interested power, I think, is central to Christian nationalism. And that's generally where we see it taking place. It's this this desire for self-interested access, privileged access to power, whereas I think as Christians to operate according to, I think, the gospel and, and the message of Jesus in a pluralistic democratic society is to um, advocate for everybody being able to have a say. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that makes me think of another quote that I want to read and get your thoughts on. Yeah. As you say, Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and is a threat to the Christian church in the United States. And I, w I would just love to hear, like, especially on like the betrayal component, because mm. again, as, that, that's just a very unique way that I hadn't really thought about it, that Christian nationalism does betray the gospel. Can you touch on that betrayal part a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, you know, it really comes down to how we define the gospel. And so in the book, I have to do that, which again is, you know, a step outside of being a social scientist. Yeah. But that's the point is like, okay, well, how are we defining the gospel then? And, um, you know, so I, I draw on Jesus's first message in Luke um, from his ministry where he quotes from Isaiah um, and he talks about the spirit of the Lord is on me and he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, sight for the blind, you know, setting the oppressed free, all of those things. And I think for so often um, or, you know, for centuries, um, the kind of Christian theologies that were created looked at that and looked at this idea of salvation um, or the work of Jesus and and only spiritualized. I think there is a spiritual aspect, but they stopped right there. They said, well, this is, he's just talking about spiritually oppressed or spiritually, you know, providing freedom, um, the spiritually poor. And, and what that does is that then allows um, kind of the status quo in kind of our embodied reality to stay the same. And so they literally, you know, folks who were enslaving um, Black Americans in Virginia, you know, even had a law that um, if you were baptized, if a black slave was baptized, they were um, free spiritually, they would go to heaven, but that did not mean that they were free embodied, right? Like they were still a slave. And so when we look at that, um, what good news is a gospel that doesn't actually set people free mm -hmm. because everybody, right, should be free. Um, yeah. And so when we're looking at the gospel, um, you know, I think that it shouldn't just stop with the spiritual, but should be something that we think about in God's kingdom coming here on earth as in heaven, that there's actually something that Christians should be about here on earth. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, that's when we can really take the evidence that social science hands us about Christian nationalism and see that, okay, this is betraying the gospel, which the gospel is good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed, good news for the blind. Um, good news for the prisoner. And we can see that this should mean that it changes our reality in the here and now. It should change how we interact in our relationships with each other. It should bring flourishing to um, all people. Um, and Christian nationalism works in the opposite direction. And so that's where I think, you know, that's where I, I kind of root this claim that it betrays the gospel. It, it doesn't only um, limit, but I think it outright opposes the work Jesus came to do and, and asked us to do likewise of, of, again, loving God and loving our neighbor, 
Um, not merely asking, well, who is my neighbor, mm -hmm. but understanding that um, Jesus sees all <laughs> as our neighbor, right? Yeah. Everyone. So that's, that's where I think it betrays the gospel. Yeah, that, that's such a, a good um, illustration that you're using of, of just that example of uh, the Good mm. Samaritan yeah. too. Mm. For, yeah. Of like, we, we find ourselves being the justifying, okay, <laughs> Jesus, who do I have to love? And yeah. he throws yeah. down the gauntlet. It's like, everybody. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and that's the thing too, man. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, there's times where, um, I, yeah, American Christianity I think we can get so comfortable. We don't recognize how um, big a claim is made on our lives and how scary that is. And it scares me, right? Yeah. Like laying down my comfort, my privilege, whatever for this, um, that's a big deal. And, yeah. and it should be a big deal. And I think, again, when the gospel is only spiritualized, it really takes away that, how big a deal that is, I guess. Mm-hmm. How how did like Christianity and Christian nationalism like mm. get get tangled together? Mm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean it has a long history. Um, so even before kind of the dawn of the U.S., um, when you know essentially Western white Europeans were coming to these shores, you know they were doing under the auspices of of the church in many uh, respects, the you know the Catholic Church and otherwise, um, in this doctrine of discovery, right? was a key part mm -hmm. of it that everywhere you go, um, you are to take that land and, and essentially do as you will for, for the church and for God. And so they saw themselves as, um, being able to move out, you know, under the, the power of, of the Christian God and, and the church at their backing and, and take this land. And so right away, we see how power over others was intertwined with the Christian faith. And, and being able to do what you want, how you want to whoever you want, um, could be forgiven and baptized essentially. Um, and so, you know, that's really where it began. And we see that, that nature taking root. Um, and so then through the centuries, we see it just continue to essentially evolve. Right. And so the doctrine of discovery becomes manifest destiny. Um, and again, now Christians can do essentially they can forgive themselves of, of essentially great evil um, because, again, they see it as part of God's calling um, for them. And so when we're talking about Christian nationalism, um, while it you know shifts and changes with the times, um, it's been with us since the beginning. So when we're looking at the Civil War, or we're looking at um, you know fear of the New Deal or the Red Scare in the 50s, or then in this reaction to a lot of the social upheaval, civil rights movement, um, the gender and sexual revolution of the 60s. You know, it's been responding to all of these, um, saying that you know we need to get you know, quote unquote, this country back to the way that it was or back mm -hmm. to following what God wants for his blessing. Um, and it was all predicated on, again, this very particular understanding of Christianity that tended to benefit white, natural born, you know, Christian citizens or men for many years. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what it's always been intertwined with. And so there's a history here to know where we're at today and understand it. And that's mm -hmm. why in this book too, I, you know, obviously cite a lot of historians because it shows us how did this come to be um, to understand where we are now, we got to know where we came from. And, and mm -hmm. that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just love your thoughts on it because I, th I think about my own life and it's at least for me, Mm -hmm. I, I really didn't even think about Christian nationalism until probably during President Trump's presidency and everything. And even, mm -hmm. and then especially like whenever uh, the January 6th Capitol riots happened, it, mm -hmm. it just seems like this has become a lot more prominent. Like mm. the, the conversation is just louder. Like if yeah. I, if I guess if I'm going to say it, like, it seems almost like before that it's like, okay, yes, this is a thing. It, it, it is something that has happened all throughout the country for mm -hmm. for in some sense since it was founded um mm -hmm. but it just seems louder now and i, I would yeah. just be curious to hear just your thoughts on just kind of just that dynamic right there yeah totally you know i think in many ways that kind of perception is true and and you know perception is reality right like mm -hmm. if we perceive things as true then they're true and their consequences and so you know there's a couple interesting things like if we look at the number of americans that strongly embrace christian nationalism we actually find that 
those folks are are becoming fewer, right? It's actually shrinking, like it's getting smaller. Um, but what what happens, and I think happened, is that when that group gets a little bit smaller, um, they see themselves and and what differentiates themselves from those outside becomes even more salient, right? So if they are like we are the people that believe the U.S. should be a Christian nation, and we are shrinking. Um, it becomes even more apparent to them that they have to lean into this identity to really be able to do what they can to save themselves or save the country as they see it. And so it's kind of this, um, you know, kind of ironic where they might be getting smaller, uh, but now they're even more committed because they see what's happening, you know, as, as kind of closing in on them. So I think that's one part of it. Um, and then, as you said, you know, we, we've seen Christian nationalist rhetoric within presidential campaigns for you know decades and decades. It isn't as though Trump was the first one to bring it. But I think in some ways he was kind of the perfect test of the power of Christian nationalism because many of, excuse me, the presidents before would at least um, kind of try to also <laughs> claim to be Christian <laughs> and that this was important to them personally. And he really didn't. Um, no. He was like, I'll give you power. I'm all about you, but you know, he's, he just really didn't say anything other beyond that. And so yeah. then we see with this group of Americans, they're like, yes, we'll take that. We don't need a leader that actually lives out these morals or beliefs. We just want somebody who's going to, again, fight for us. Yeah. Um, and so then when he came into office, um, he knew this was a powerful political tool. And so a person in that seat, the most powerful political obviously position in the world kind of pushing that out like that rhetoric really did become part of of the national consciousness so it's been there but there were some you know historical things that that took place there with with a president really willing to lean into it and a lot of americans totally great with him doing that that mm. did cause it to be a little bit more kind of out there for all of us yeah you know, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned and you said for this book, and, and there is sociology in it, but you said you had mm -hmm. to go out of sociology. Like you did right. have to make it personal. Can you just talk to me about that process and what that was like for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, um, it was good and it was a good kind of difficult, right? Like it was stretching and it, just kind of a different type of writing um, to be able to bring that in and wanting to bring that in. And, um, and so there were moments where I really needed, you know, others to read it and to help kind of find that voice and find that tone. Mm -hmm. um, because again, yeah, academics, some of the stuff we write, you know, as part of our job is pretty dry and yeah. like, that's it. Right. Um, but with our first book, uh, taking America back for God, you know, mm -hmm. Sam and I really wanted it to be where it was like, you know, if you're reading op-ed in the newspaper, like that yeah. type of engagement. Um, and then for this one, I really did want to bring out my voice in order to show like, I mean, this is really the, the, the big thing for me, this kind of key goal is to show that I'm on a journey and I continue to be on a journey and really to try and invite others to wherever they're at on the journey. Let's journey together, right? You, mm -hmm. you don't have to be further than me or, you know, further behind me, or, or it doesn't matter where we are, but let's journey together and explore this together. And so I wanted to bring that aspect of myself to it um, to, you know, essentially put myself out there, right? Like mm -hmm. you can look at me and this is where I've been and where I'm going. And then, you know, hopefully it, it allows folks to wrestle with it uh, in their own way. Um, and that's what I would hope is that it allows folks space just to wrestle, to think, because it, it takes time. It, it takes um, mulling these things over for a bit. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, the impetus, but there were days where it was harder. Um, but overall, you know, I was just, I feel really fortunate to be able to do that, um, mm. you know, at this point. So mm. it was, I don't know if I would say it was fun, but it's fun to have done it right. Like the famous <laughs> quote, like I hate writing, but I love having written. It's kind of that yeah. thing. Like yeah. it was challenging, but, uh, but now that it, you know, it's completed. It was like, okay, that was, that was a worthwhile journey. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would just love your thoughts, Martin, you know, you know, mentioned being on this journey. And I think for, for, for so many Christians, it's this journey of just trying to figure out of how to balance, you know, love for God and following Jesus while mm -hmm. at the same time, appreciating your country as yeah. well. 
and loving yeah. your country. Can mm-hmm. you talk to me kind of like how you deal with that, that yeah. just dynamic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so this is kind of this idea of like how how can Christians or can Christians be patriotic, mm-hmm. right, without sliding into Christian nationalism? And I would say like wholeheartedly, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, we can define patriotism different ways, but I would say, you know, we should try and define it as a love for um, our the people, right? A love for the people of America. Um, and to do that, that means that we should want the many benefits that we enjoy of being American, you know, the historical accent of being born American, um, to be um, accessible to as many people as possible because we get to enjoy it. I want them to be able to enjoy it as well and to be a part of that process. And so, you know, it's similar to when the Olympics happen or, you know, right now the uh, world championships for track and field are taking place. Like there's folks that I don't know, you know, didn't know before now, but I see them on there and they are from my country and I'm instantly, you know, not to the detriment of any other runner, but I'm just cheering for this person because they represent me. And so I think that's where Christians can and should be a part of our civic discussions, you know, and, and we can be patriotic. We can lift up and be thankful for the the many good things um, that America offers. And then in that spirit, be able to call out where America needs to do better. And I think that is patriotism, like mm-hmm. true love, um, you know, is is not my my spouse never telling me um where i might have gone wrong right but it's her saying you know these are this is great or hey this hurt or we need to do better here that's true love and so mm-hmm. if we love our country and we want to be patriotic i think we can carry both we can do both we can critique and say we need to do better we need to move move away from this this way that it harms people um we need to seek the flourishing of all um, but yet, too, we can celebrate when when those steps are taken. I think both can happen. Mm. Uh, I, I want to read this quote, and it's a little bit lengthy. But it, but, but this, I, whenever I read this, I was like, oh shoot, this is such a good uh, point, and just highlighted an aspect of how Christian nationalism shows Christian nationalism shows up that I don't necessarily think about all the time. Mm-hmm. But you say what stands out to me now is how willing we are to sacrifice a bit of time and wealth to go to other people's communities and insert ourselves. How we feel called by God to take our religion and culture to them with the understanding that having been hospitably received, we will then leave. And I am struck by how opposed white Christians can be to showing similar levels of hospitality to fellow human beings from different countries even fellow Christians who make Mm. their way to our country. And then uh, a little bit further, you say, when they come to our communities, we are much less willing to sacrifice our time, energy, and resources to serve them. Mm. I would just love for you, man, that whatever I read that, that was just (laughs) in the best way possible. It felt like a knife or like a jab to the stomach. Um, And so great job on creating just that. Um, But I would, I would just love to have you just elaborate Mm. just a little bit on that dynamic and kind of how, what's behind that and how Christian nationalism shows up in that too. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that is in a chapter where I'm kind of wrestling with fear of immigrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, so as we look at like trying to export American Christianity to to other countries, um, you know, it can kind of seem like, or it was always said, it's like, well, we're just trying to, um, you know, save souls and that's it. But it really was taking kind of all the cultural stuff, too, and and saying you've got to be like us. Um, And I think, you know, coming to realize that kind of dropping in um, and going there and then trying to change however things worked there to look more like us, how, you know, really kind of in some ways inhospitable that was. And if others came here and did that to us, how would that feel? You know, it's Mm -hmm. this kind of trying to empathize with what that would feel like for them. And then, you know, for me, looking around, especially recently with how kind of vehemently people are opposed to refugees or immigrants who are are really fleeing for their lives, um, mm-hmm. you know, and what it would take to leave my home country, how bad it would have to be to leave my home country and everything I have and 
all, all the things that I built up and family members to try and go somewhere to make a new life or have access to the possibility of a new life for my family or young ones, that would take so much courage and it would be so scary. And so, I don't know, I think for me, like trying to hear those stories and empathize with those stories, um, I would hope as Christians, we we would empathize with them and see, okay, this would be really difficult and it isn't um, something to fear or be afraid of, but then how can we, or I think we are called to then serve and to love and to listen and to have them lead and show us how we can support them. And so mm-hmm. um, I think it's that kind of juxtaposition of we were so willing to go, but then we knew we could leave them behind and come back here. Um, but when they come to us, um, how, yeah, we're, we're less willing generally. Um, at least that's what survey data tells us less yeah. willing generally to, to sacrifice for them or, or to serve them in some way. Mm-hmm. With all this, and I love how you say it. How do, how do we go about like recalibrating Christianity? Mm-hmm. Like in, in light of everything that we've talked about, yeah. how do we, yeah. How do we recap recalibrate? Yeah. Well, I think, one of the key ways, um, or there's kind of two key ways, I think. One is um, trying to, as so I'll kind of, again, put myself in the seat here. Yeah. So as a white Christian man in the U.S., um, I could get in a time machine and go back <laughs> to the very beginning, and I would have access to you know, anything the country had to offer. There wasn't a time when... I was marginalized based on kind of my who I am. Um, but there are plenty of folks that have been at some point in that history or even today. And so I think for me, what I've had to do is to read um, the books written by or listen to the talks uh, spoken by, um, listen to the voices of those who are historically marginalized. So they have kind of some social location different than me, whether it's um, women or, you know, uh, or folks that are not white, uh, folks that are not natural born citizens, or even folks outside my religious tradition, um, to listen to their voices and to try and think through and empathize with their experience. Um, And to do that, I think that then helped me, and I think it will help American Christians and American Christianity to be much more ready to set aside Um, trying to protect us or our privilege or power and to think about, well, then how can I come alongside these groups? How can I leverage what I've been given um, in order that they might have the chances that I've had, right? In order that they might flourish. Um, And that's what I think it will take is um, understanding that God is not, um, you know, that I kind of, I think I say this in the book, but empire is not at the center of God's story. Right. Mm -hmm. Jesus moved to the margins and that's where he was found. And so that's where we need to be and understand that America is an empire. Right. Uh, It it isn't the people of Israel in this kind of narrative um, if we're talking about the story, but it's more like Babylon and more like Rome. I mean, it's a it's a world superpower. And so as Christians, really being aware of our citizenship within that and what that means. So I think that's part of it. And then as we listen to and move toward um, and hopefully follow the lead of those who have been marginalized or crushed. I think then we have to look for how we can be part of systemic change that helps them engage in flourishing Um, because it isn't just trying to help one person, which we should do charity. One-on-one charity is important, but it doesn't mean that that will help us find justice because as you know, the story that I share in the book, um, like the the driver's test in Indiana, the manual, if it's only in English, um, those who don't speak English really have no access. And so we could mm-hmm. teach every single person who doesn't speak uh, English to then speak English and read English and have the study or be able to study the manual, or we can ensure that the manual is offered in different languages. And now we've made a systemic change so that all might have access to that good of being a, a citizen of Indiana or, or the U.S. And so... Um, I think that's where we have to move towards those on the margins, listen to their stories, but then understand what are the systems that are placing them at the margins and how can we leverage where we're at to help change those systems. Mm-hmm. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you yes. about, but before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to talk about anything that we haven't covered so far. I know yeah. that there's so many other things that we could talk about, um, but pertaining to the book or even just mm-hmm. anything, um, just top of mind, is there anything that you want to... Uh, just mention before we conclude our conversation. 
Gosh, that's yeah, it's it's a good question, but it's hard for me in the moment to think. I mean, you, yeah, we really were able to kind of highlight the you know what the book is about and my hope for it, and I think mm-hmm. that's that's the big thing is that um, just hopeful that it'll be helpful to folks on that journey. Um, again, not feeling like um, that they have to apologize for where they're at, but just understand that, you know, confronting and opposing Christian nationalism, isn't like amputation where you read this book and congrats, like, here's your medal, you know, you are now you're done, but it's every day. Like for me, for everyone, it's every day. It's more like flossing, right? We just have to continually try to work on how we see the world and who we're listening to and and trying to move toward, um, you know, it flourishing for all people. So, mm-hmm. so just, I guess that type of encouragement that we're on this journey together. Yeah. Well, what I would love for you to close out our conversation, it's the same way that you close mm-hmm. out the book with this powerful uh, illustration of story and story of mm-hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer or mm-hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then I, I know I'm going to get his name wrong, but it's <laughs> Renold Niebuhr, I think. Yeah. Is that how you yeah. say it? Yeah. Okay. Niebuhr. Yeah. yeah Niebuhr. Yep. Would you mind just uh, closing Hmm. out with that uh, illustration that you use in the book? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, building off of uh, Reggie Williams work um, and James Cone, two people that were writing about this um, and pointing this out, but you know, what they were, what they were showing in this difference between um, Niebuhr and and Bonhoeffer is Niebuhr, you know, believed the right things that, um, you know, slavery or Jim Crow or the inequality that black Americans face is, um, is evil and wrong. Um, but it kind of stopped there. Um, whereas for Bonhoeffer, he, in his experience was with them and saw that inequality and essentially, you know, really took to heart, um, that reality. And that caused him to then act and to speak out against lynching and against, Mm -hmm. um, segregation. Whereas Niebuhr, um, did but didn't really embody that and so it's kind of this contrast in studies um where for for christians i think the lesson there for for me um Mm -hmm. is that i can know something is wrong kind of in my mind but until i really try to empathize and bring that um kind of deep within me will i then be able to have the courage to act so it's not necessarily like not knowing the right thing but um, having the courage then to be like, I have to do something or I have to speak out or I have to leverage my voice or who, what I have at my disposal to then make this change. And so I think that's kind of the, um, the lesson that, that I took from that and, um, hope, hope that it helps others to kind of encourage on this journey forward. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, American Idolatry and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so it's kind of sold wherever wherever you buy books, right? The big online retailers or bookshop to support local bookstores or uh, Baker Bookhouse. They always have it mm-hmm. really for the cheapest and free shipping. So I would want people to be able to find the the best prices. But um, so that's where they can find that. And then, you know, I'm on social media. Um, that's where I try to kind of keep up with what I'm studying or learning about. Um, and so, yeah, Twitter for as long as it lasts, or I guess it's not even Twitter now, but um, for as <laughs> long as it lasts. I think it's always going to be Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Instagram and Facebook. And so, yeah, across the different media platforms. Um, but yeah, that's where they can find me. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the great conversation. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I I really had fun and enjoyed this and um, all the best. So I think reflecting back on this conversation, there's there's really two things that stand out to me. One is that that uh, quote that I read about how Christians, we tend to want to to influence or impose our culture, but we don't want to be imposed on. We don't want to be influenced. And so really just thinking, it really just got me thinking about, am I as passionate about being influenced by other Christians or learning learning how to follow Jesus in a way that is maybe different in the way than I did as passionately as I am, as, uh, as I am about showing others my way. And I guess it, it just, it just goes to this dynamic of 
Am I as passionate about learning from others as I am about teaching others? And knowing that if if you are if you are more passionate about teaching others than learning from others, that that is just something to watch out for. But I also I also think on on the inverse too, which is which is sometimes where I can um, I, I find myself on both both ends of that spectrum. But also just figuring out that you know sometimes it's not enough to learn. Sometimes you need to show your weight and show what God is doing in your life as well. But again. It's, it's both. It's a both and thing. It's not either or. It's both. It's both learning and teaching. It's both learning and sharing in that. And the other thing is of just what that, I remember reading that illustration of, of Bonhoeffer and, and Niebuhr at the end and just thinking that I, I just don't want to be somebody who believes the right things or says the right things. Or I don't want to be somebody who believes in Jesus, but it doesn't transform how I how I behave or how I act or how I love other people. And yeah, and that just it just really challenged me, especially because recently I think I've I've just been encountering a lot of quotes and stuff from from Niebuhr and and I like some of the stuff that he says, but again, it's it's it, it packs more of a punch. It means more if you see that they're willing to to live out what they believe and not only pontificate about some of the ideas and stuff that they that they talk about. And Bonhoeffer did that. And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from just this conversation. And again, if you want to keep up with me and some of the things that I'm learning from, some of the things that are engaging my curiosity and some of the things that I'm enjoying, please subscribe to my Substack newsletter to where I just give three recommendations of some of the things that I'm enjoying and that are engaging my my interest right now. So with that said, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you to Andrew for being on the podcast and, uh, and just for the work that he does and, and just very much appreciate it because the work that he's doing is, is, I mean, just what we talked about. It's, it's been stuff that's happened all throughout history, but right now it just seems to be a little bit more prominent and is very important. And so thank you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast as well. That's all that I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.